one of the survivors who's represented in the piece in, in an early performance was asked by one of our local reporters is what Hank has in the play exactly what you said to him in the interviews she said it's not exactly what I said but it's exactly what I meant I mean it's very gratifying to me that's what a playwright or a psychologist or you know that's what you hope is true that it's, it feels to the person like you capture something essential in what they wanted to convey and that in turn leads to the provocative point but I think again life serves it all the time that sometimes we can not only help someone tell their story quote but sometimes we can tell someone else's stories better than they can tell it themselves and when I say that I don't mean in a more authentic way but I mean bring in our thinking maybe our literary talent, whatever it is to bear, helps create a representation of what they intend. That then, as I described Aggie doing, then they can take with them, and the next time they tell some part of, quote, their story, they, they're borrowing back. Again, it's the same thing as, that's the legacy, right? It's that sort of messy, all over the place, bits and pieces uh, kind of thing. You find that liberating too, that you don't have to be absolutely straight-jacketed into the story, the verbatim, the, you know, more complicated, to be more interesting. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was psychologist, oral historian, educator, actor, playwright, and author, Dr. Henry Greenspan, discussing his minimalist drama entitled remnants. This play is based on four decades of conversation with Holocaust survivors, and Dr. Greenspan goes into more depth during our conversation about this drama, his book on listening to Holocaust survivors, Beyond Testimony, as well as a book he co-authored with Aggie Rubin entitled Reflections, Auschwitz, Memory, and a Life Recreated. We also discuss a few of his other plays, including Death slash Play, or The Mad Jester of the Warsaw Ghetto, and Gravediggers, set in Ukraine. And Dr. Greenspan closes with sharing his thoughts on injustice and how legacy is shaped by what others take from one's actions and words based on their own experiences. Dr. Henry Greenspan, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Would you start with describing the range of your work and how you began in your field? The origin of anything is, is um, can be anything, right, uh, in terms of when you started. But really, I think the work that's most relevant is interviewing survivors, which happened by accident. I was uh, just after college uh, working as research assistant uh, for a whole other project, interviewing people uh, for a psychologist. And the person I interviewed, one, turned out to be a Holocaust survivor, and he told me, this goes back to 1970, um, and he said, I was the first, quote, American, meaning born in the U.S. after the war, not by much, but after the war, with whom he'd spoken about his experiences, and this is 25 years after liberation, and I was amazed by that. I, you know, I'd say, how could that be? Um, I was to hear that a lot in those years. So that was the beginning, that particular interview, which should have been a two-hour research interview, turned out to be a 10-hour conversation, um, which became, in a way, the sort of hallmark of the work that I do. Unlike most survivor testimony uh, projects, which um, are now quite common, they weren't so much then, um, most of those are now, of course, video testimonies, and they're two or three hours in front of a, a camera. And that's it. My approach, um, which I didn't realize I was um, anticipating in those, in those days, was to talk with people much longer than two or three hours, and more than once. Now, with this particular guy, it was just that one full day of, of uh, discussion. Um, but over the years, the survivors and I kind of made it up because there weren't, well, it wasn't a clear model. So that meant meeting several times over a period of weeks, months, in some cases years, with a few people, decades. So this was in-depth, um, getting to know people. Some were became very close friends um, in my life, very important people in my life, some more professional, one could say, but still it was a sustained, deepening, ongoing conversation, which to me is the kind of the ground of everything that I try to do in life. 
um, whether it's teaching or interviewing survivors or whatever, that's my my sense is everything feeds back to conversation. And if it's any, if it, it's usefulness ultimately will come down to how well it contributes to any conversation, how well it informs and so on. But in this work in particular, um, you know, it's depth rather than um, breadth. You can't interview a lot of Holocaust survivors or anybody if you meet with them over a period of years. I don't mean every week, but um, it means a relatively uh, smaller amount than some of the big testimony projects that we have now, which may be thousands uh, of interviews. I, I have not done thousands of interviews, um, and, and I don't aspire to that. I, I would, for me, I'm also a psychologist, so an oral history person, so it makes sense to go deep rather than wide and, and get to know people in that way. And yes, you learn and hear different things in different ways when you do know people in those ways. Um, not because they change their story, but as we all know, there's more than one way to tell, tell the same true story, right? How much detail and who you think's on the other side of the, of the table, um, what you think they'll get, what you've already explained, what you want to explain further, um, and so on. The other thing I'll say, which is kind of a keynote in my work, is as collaborative as it could be. So to make that specific, it was not unusual for me to bring to a later meeting, I call them interviews, but they really, they became just good conversation, um, excerpts from an earlier one. And the survivor and I would pour over them together. So we would have a chance to literally revisit a moment and maybe I... You know, I'm not sure I would say I, I understood what you were saying here. Or can you tell me more? Um, so this is really working together. And um, one of the survivors whom I quote all the time, and I will no doubt again today, I think Augie Rubin described a good interview as a process of learning together, um, learning together, which we don't think about. You know, when we usually in interviews, we think that we as interviewer are somehow extracting information and we learn from the other person, but they don't learn um, so much. But you know, we all know in real conversation in life, we're learning all the time. Um, someone once said, "How do I know what I think until I tell you what I think?" Right? <laughs> I mean, and or our English teachers used to tell us, "You know, you have to put it in writing because you won't know what you really think until you commit yourself in writing." And, and good talk is the same way. So the survivors would learn things in the course of our conversations about their own experience. I would obviously learn things. And ideally, in really good interviews, there's that kind of magic of learning together. Um, so that's the collaborative aspect, on you know, which is also, I, I think, a signature of the kind of work that I believe in. Um, as an interviewer, a psychologist, the way it's, uh, I don't do therapy anymore, but I used to. And of course, that's how a good therapy works too. You know, the therapist, necessarily learns about themselves but you know um, in the tradition that i came up in um there was no such thing as an interpretation unless the person on the other side of the room made some sense of it and it led to things and it developed and timing mattered um so it's not like you sit back as academics tend to do <laughs> and sort of pronounce well here's what they meant this is what it doesn't mean anything until you get the response of the person you know, on the other side of the room, um, across the table. How did you decide then to take those uh, conversations and build them into the courses and the plays and the books? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, this is essentially a kind of organic process. Um, just taking one aspect, um, because I had these long relationships. And also, I did my own transcribing, which means that, uh, as we all know who does transcribing, to transcribe an hour of an interview can take easily 10 hours if you want to get the ers and ahs in. So, in doing that, these voices, not only themes, but the intonation, the cadences of voice, the emphases, things that I certainly would have missed if I had just kind of quickly listened through. Um, became sort of imprinted. Um, and I can't say that I memorized these interviews, but it was just that process of transcribing. So when it came to, say, teaching 
I had a kind of inner um, archive of at least my own interviews. So I knew when someone said this or someone said that or how they said it and so on. And when it was time to start creating the trajectory of a course, I, um, you know, I, I, it was easy to access in a way my memory of what some particular person said that would be relevant to the theme of the week. And along with the people I interviewed, there were, you know, I spent years um, while I was interviewing and, and all along the way reading memoirs and um, essentially everything that seemed relevant to the topic. Um, so, you know, my teaching was not simply interviews or excerpts from interviews. Um, that was part of it, but it was all in the context of teaching history more generally and drawing on memoirs. Um, some of the best known, Billy Bitzel and Primo Levi, Charlotte Dobo, people are considered to be in the quote canon of uh, Holocaust memoirists and writers. Um, and people that most of us haven't heard of, but who are my good friends, <laughs> I got to know in my interviews. And they were on an equal footing, why not? I mean, and so all part of the conversation. And, and I will say, despite my going on as I do, my teaching was also as dialogic as I could make it. Um, you know, I taught mostly small courses, seminars. So I really there too. The goal was to get students into the conversation as much as I could, or I would say to widen the conversation. If I had my conversation with a survivor um, would be part of the class, and then I would invite the students to say, well, what do you think? What did he mean by that? Or what did she mean by that? It was kind of a psychologist kind of question. What, what was going on? Let's slow that down. Let's let's listen to it again, as though they were transcribing. Um, so it's that sort of obsessive <laughs> uh, listening, listening again, listening again. That's part of what I see myself te teaching. And when survivors uh, joined us in person, it was the same thing. Um, and I will say with some satisfaction that survivors often in my class um, appreciated the fact that, first of all, the students really knew they were used to listening in depth and asking questions that mattered to them. Um, and it was not unusual for survivors to say in my class also, gosh, I, I never thought about it that way. You know, you triggered something. Sometimes they'd write it down. You know, I want to remember that. I want to write about that. The survivors. Um, so again, it was an emergent conversation in which everybody uh, learned in different ways, different things. Um, it wasn't an extraction process. So that's the teaching piece. The teaching came first and then the books? Yeah, I think so. It's, it, it is, in a way, the foundation for me. Uh, luckily, I taught at an institution or a college within an institution that really valued teaching. As you know, not all universities do, especially big research universities. Um, but for me and where I was, teaching was central. Um, so, yeah, I think it was those kind of conversations was the, was the ground. Um, I, of course, I, I wrote um, about these issues, my dissertation. Uh, before I was teaching, really, was was also on this topic. Um, people, uh, as we all know, if you're in grad school, your advisors will say, "Don't make your dissertation your life's work. You know, get it done, and then you'll do your life's work." Well, my dissertation was my life's work. <laughs> it just turned out that way. Um, again, because I took forever to do it, but it, but that taking forever in part reflected what I was saying earlier, which is listening, 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 listening. That sort of obsessive care to try to hear it as well as one could and to talk with the person interviewed and to involve them in the process. So uh, it takes time. Um, so writing, um, academic writing, uh, first of all, you know, a couple of books in particular, which reflect these years of uh, interviewing and trying to make sense of uh, the best sense I could of what I was hearing. We often turn survivors into symbols in a way, icons of the Holocaust, rather than people just like us who went through that and had 
in general, the good fortune to come out the other side. Of course, the vast majority of people didn't. And in one moment, responding to the ways that survivors are often made into almost symbolic figures, celebrities these days of sorts, Agi Rubin exclaimed, I'm not a quote-unquote capital S Holocaust survivor. Yeah, I survived, but I'm not the survivor. I'm not a category. I'm not a thing. We have enough experience being categories, you watch what he said. You know, this is what we do often with people whose experiences or circumstances feel, seem to us to be so overwhelming, or fill us with awe or fear or who knows what, that they become symbols of the thing. I mean, it happens with cancer patients when, you know, suddenly it, it's classic stigma which can be, of course, positive or negative, in which you identify someone with whatever quality or characteristic you think, you know, strikes you as most significant or defining. And it it may or may not be, but certainly it's unlikely to be who they are in, in a real way. Uh, you know, I would just finish by saying the, the bottom of that slippery slope is that if survivors become those Holocaust people, Holocaust survivors, as opposed to us, who didn't experience that, obviously, but otherwise kind of alien figures, then it's as though this didn't happen to anybody, at least not anybody like us. It happened to those Holocaust people. And of course, if we do it with survivors, I think even more are we likely to do it with the vastly greater number of people who didn't survive, you know, come the sort of mass, the uh, dead, uh, et cetera, anonymous people who aren't quite people, but again, part of, and I hate to say it this way, but again, so it's a cliche to say it, but I think, you know, it's easy to say. It's not so easy to feel, I think, you know, and I, I would say in my own experience, um, during especially the early years when I used to, I will say, I used schmooze with survivors and you know talking death with survivors um you know i had some of that sense of, of awe and um you know there was a sense of it, it was sometimes a surprise to me um when a survivor would just you know we'd just be joking around about whatever um even famous people which i happened to get to know ellie wiesel the, i drove and we had a the car didn't work and <laughs> and we were talking football, we're talking weather, and I'm thinking to myself, a part of me thinking, my God, I'm talking about football with Ellie Wiesel. You know, why not, right? I mean, why not? But it's it's um, sometimes a challenge for us to keep the experience, whatever it is, and the person um, separate. Not that it's separate, obviously, in terms of what made them who they are and how they experience their lives, but they are not their experience. None of us are our experience. We are whoever we are, who went through whatever it is, you know? So that's the bigger point. And several of the individuals that you have had these prolonged conversations with, you discuss in your mm -hmm. book on listening to Holocaust survivors beyond testimony. One of them is Leon, who I've heard you also talk about uh, a few times, especially his retelling of a particular story about, uh, I believe it's a gentleman, Lieberman, who was executed in front of him. Uh, right. Those kinds of, you you hone in on how those kinds of stories uh, were repeated right. over and over. I wonder, you've touched on that a little bit before, but I wonder if you might just right. uh, discuss that for a moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what made that particular example, which I often do go back to striking, was that Leon, um, this was early uh, in our first three interviews, actually four interviews, um, retold this particular episode. And it was clear each time he hadn't remembered telling it. And it was the only one that he repeated that way. So it wasn't some sort of neurologic tick or something like that. This is one of the things that happens when you interview someone more than once. I would I'd never have noted that, right, if there weren't further interviews. So as a psychologist in particular, I said, well, what's going on here? I mean, here's this guy who kept remembering 
And he also said each time some version of this kind of thing I almost never remember because it was so traumatic, his word. But here's a guy who kept remembering what he says he almost never remembers without remembering that he kept remembering it. So what's up with that? And because also we had gotten to know each other well enough by interview three or four, and he was a very, very interesting, interested, brilliant man who I knew would be interested in the question. So so I asked him, um, I'm smiling because it was almost, I wish I'd waited a little longer, but I was so interested in what's up with this that I, I asked him um, why he thought he came back. You know, I didn't put him on the spot, but I knew, you know, it just was, just, you know, and it was, it opened up a world to me um, because here's how he put it. Um, that there are a few things about this you couldn't have known. Um, and I couldn't. I mean, uh, this story, if you just heard it once, sounded like a number of other horrific experiences he had. But there were certain qualities. And it all boiled out of the fact that this was the moment, which you wouldn't know from just the first version of the story, when he realized there was no exit. If they could kill this guy, then everybody was, as he put it, they could step on you with as much care as it takes to step on a cockroach. This was his moment of fully realizing he had been in a small labor camp in which he felt, even in the midst of the Holocaust, relatively safe. And this meant nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. And, you know, it was that personal moment of realization of that. And so in the context of discussing that episode of his memory, um, he also said something else which turned out to be very central in my thinking about all of this. This also says something about how interviews work. Just following up, I said, I used the phrase, I said, so this story, I could have said, so this memory, so this episode, so this anything, but I said, so this story. And he, just in the moment of the interview, just sort of jumped on that. He said, it's not a story. It's clear he was not only talking about this episode, but in general, he said, it has to be made a story in order to convey it. And with all the frustrations that implies, because at best you compromise, you compromise. So it's not a story. It has to be made a story. Now, what does that mean? You know, we hear, uh, and I read, uh, people are always talking about survivors' stories, and survivors have stories. What Leon was suggesting to me is that which is retold in the form of narratives stories in the usual sense with the beginning, middle, end, characters, things happen, unfolding. That's some of, obviously, what people have to retell. But it may not be the essence of what people remember. Yeah? Um, what people remember may be far more everything at once, chaos, smells, sensory experience, just pure terror. That is not a narrative. You know, it's an experience, but it's not a story. Uh, pure terror is not a story. The smell, of you can imagine, is not a story. And yet it's part of the experience in, in essential ways. So that's in a way obvious, but that's what Leon was, I think, suggesting. So that in turn um, cued me to think about when survivors told whatever episodes to realize that these were perhaps also stories made for what's not a story, that they always pointed beyond themselves and that as I've written, it's very important as listeners not to take the made story for the whole story. You know, it's just, I wouldn't call it the top of the iceberg. It's just a piece of what people actually remember. So it's not a stopping place. It's a, it's a beginning place. You know, I, I, I don't think, um, I still don't think we get that. Meaning when I say we, um, my field, people who work in this area, you know, we're so attached to the notions of narrative and stories in general um, that we, we tend not to think of them as, well, in the opening of my play Remnants, um, I say the voices of survivors are themselves survivors. Um, and I would say the stories of survivors are also survivors. You know, they're what remains. They're what uh comes back to us they're relatively speaking as leon said tellable um and relatively speaking hearable you know 
there's a character, something happened, there's a certain logic, there's a certain unfolding. Um, what we tend not to realize is that what we're hearing that's told that way is, again, just the beginning. And, you know, depending on how far we want to go and how, how deeply we want to engage, um, knowing that helps. Knowing that suggests, uh, well, maybe there's more. Maybe there's a lot more to understand than what comes through in these surviving stories. So. Since you brought it up, uh, would you give an overview of remnants and, and a taste for it? Yeah, so remnants did emerge from this work and over the course of meeting with people over time um, and knowing people well, every now and then people would come to an episode, a story, or an image, maybe an experience that they had talked about numerous times over the course of our conversations. But as happens in life, you know, nothing unique here about survivors, at this time, they would strike on an image, or maybe it was a cadence of voice, or some way of retelling that just nailed it. You know, this is like these moments of natural poetry that we have in life that um, uh, we when we're telling them i think even as teller we we sort of feel wow you know, that's about as close as i can get to really nailing something to really conveying something and certainly on the listening side usually both people you know there's a bit of a you know, I, I'm going to go slightly sideways and say, you know, when Leon said that thing about making a story, not a story, we were both smokers in those days. And I remember we both kind of lit up. It's as though, wow, that was cool. <laughs> as we used to say in those days, that was really cool. You know, so it's that sense of, yeah, we really nailed something. You nailed something. You did. But we sort of came to it together. So it's those uh, moments. Um, I didn't know what I would ever do with them other than remember them. You know, they're gifts when that happens in life. But over time, you know, I had the notion of wanting to do more than just include them in, a, in, in say, academic writing. Um, I was invited to, by a student group, actually, to help to do a sort of theater piece. Um, and um, this was an opportunity for me to begin to think about taking some of these moments, these special times, and creating monologues which reconstructed those moments when survivors came to a particular image, metaphor, cadence, which again, nailed something for them, certainly for me, not only about their own experience, but also about the experience, meaning about what it is to go through such hell and a lot of, and you, I know you've seen the play, um, a lot of the monologues are not only about the war and what people experienced themselves, but also about others' responses to them over the years as people who went through the war, as survivors. So about half of this play is about listeners. It's about, you know, the, the cousin who didn't want to hear, I saw the newsreels, I don't want to hear a word, a word about it. You know, that's not a lot or the ways that we, as survivors experience it, try to make sense of what they experienced. So that's a big part of this piece, as well as what they experienced. Um, I guess the only other thing to say is that it's, it's, it's because it's those kind of moments, it's necessarily uh, condensed, you know, and um, there's a kind of unremitting quality because it's it's all like the essence, the, this essence, that essence. So timing becomes important, I, I guess, in general, as a uh, as a writer, maybe not as a speaker. <laughs> I tend toward minimalism. I tend toward, uh, especially with this topic, work that is relatively spare. You know, my goodness, with a topic like this, you don't need anything extra. <laughs> you don't need breathiness. And one of the individuals that you've already referenced several times, Augie Rubin, is referenced in the play. And you also did a book, Reflections, Auschwitz, 
memory and a life recreated. And if you would give a taste for that book and, and how you both decided to create it together. Like everything else, it took a long time <laughs> to come to be. But Agi said very early in our acquaintance, I think we started in 1980, and um, and she said in a, in a totally nice way, um, it wasn't transactional as it may sound, but she said, you know, when we get through with your book, we will get to my book. <laughs> and Reflections was really her book. And it took a long time, um, as usual. But um, she started writing just as a kid. She was liberated. She was 16 years old. And she kept a diary. Uh, not every day. But she just started writing literally two days out of liberation from one of the death marches that followed the evacuation of Auschwitz. So part of her book was intended was to draw on what she wrote in her diary. And then she would come back to the diary in later years. Again, not every day, not every year. But that was the spine of the book. So Reflections refers to the notion of looking back at herself in 1945 and 1950 and 1960, looking back at herself, looking back you know, at from these diary excerpts. So it's really her work because we'd had so many conversations. I this is already getting into the 2000s. The book was published in 2006. Um, so I knew all of these episodes and reflections, and so I drew. We drew together on our own conversations, which you know I had recordings or transcripts and so on um and we worked together again collaboratively to decide and she always had final call like what's what version of this episode reflection and so on is most important to frame to include and, and how to do it so unlike the play which is more my reconstruction you know um the book is really Augie's call with my and i was more than an editor it's hard to describe what my role was i i was not a co-writer it's clearly her book and yet i brought whatever i could bring in terms of literary something or others um to uh, to work with her to make these decisions about how to say you know how she might want to say this how she might want to say this but really and she would come back and you know we knew each other very well again and so you know, she is not shy about saying, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, if I came up with an idea, no, 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 that's not me. You know, that's you, that's not me. She knew whose voice was whose voice. So this is her voice. So, uh, yeah. So that was that was that book. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm, I think it came out well, I will say. Really, it's still well, excited all the time for her. As I add one little sub-story, which goes back to the play, but it has something to do with how, what collaboration looks like. Um, the last section, the last monologue of the play, and I don't name her, but it's it's an experience of hers. Um, she had seen the play, Remnants, multiple times, um, had her own, you know, she would judge actors, especially, you know, professional actors. I, I, I didn't first do it myself. It was you know, other actors, and she would come up and say, never let them do it again. <laughs> they went over the time, whatever. So she was a good critic. Um, but after she saw the play a number of times, when she would tell a particular episode, say in a school, she would start to tell it more like my reconstruction in the play than before. In other words, she borrowed back my retelling of her retelling when in schools. Now, we do that all the time in life, you know? Um, we will tell something to a friend and they'll say, well, it's kind of like that, yeah? Say, oh, yeah, that's cool. Or maybe our friend comes up with an image that, that, that seems to them, oh, yeah, it's just like that, right? Next time we tell, quote, our story, we may draw on our friend's image or their connection that we hadn't made when we tell our story. So most of our stories, I would again suggest in our lives, are co-authored. Um, whether we think about it that way or not, 
and we don't usually stop and give our friend a footnote. You know, by the way, that image I just <laughs> came from John, you know, and whatever. We just do it. So things emerge again between people. Um, so there was nothing unusual, but I will say it was striking to me. I said, my goodness, I almost felt slightly guilty. I mean, it's like uh, she was, she's talking like the play instead of like, who's, <laughs> is this okay? But I actually, I think it's more than okay. I think it's how, well, again, it's how it is in life. Uh, well, we think in sort of individualistic terms, again, everyone has who they are and they have like my story and you have your story and this story. It's a lot more interesting and complicated and and uh, and so on than than that. But I just think you know, it's just expanding some of the ways we think about. Those. Yeah. And how did the play, uh, the Mad Jester of the Warsaw Ghetto? And I, I think I'm not even getting the title right. Is it Death or Play? Yeah. It's it's um it's not Death Play, but it's Death. Slash, which sounds like a horror movie, but anyway, death, you know, with the slash mark play. So it's sort of death over play, or, you know, as a little fraction. Um, um, the subtitle of Manchester, the Warsaw Ghetto. This is a very recent piece. Um, and um, the relevance in terms of what we've been talking about is that um, it's based on a real person, a guy named Rubenstein, who was, in fact, known as the Mad Jester of the Warsaw Ghetto. He was kind of like the town fool, and he was very well known um, at the time. There was even a play about him in the ghetto itself. You know, he was a sort of celebrity. So he would, because he was a town fool, it meant he had a kind of immunity. Um, he could say things, even directly to the Germans, that other people would, you know, not come close to saying. And he would do things. He had various antics. He did not survive. And what he was very uh, aware of, at least in my understanding and how it is in the play, is that he knew he would not. He, he didn't think, well, in essence, hardly anyone would survive. Um, and so the question of the play is, what is an artist? Because he was an artist, like a street artist, kind of a comedian, a kind of an actor. What do they do when you know as is, of course, ultimately true for all of us, but in a different way in these extreme circumstances. Nobody's going to get out alive. What do you do? What do you do? This is like an old person kind of question. <laughs> I mean, you know, as I experience my own mortality, of course, and I, we're in, through this pandemic and all the other catastrophes that characterize our world right now, um, you know, this question of what does an artist or anyone do in the midst of walls closing in is. Uh, in a way, uh, something that is perhaps on many of our minds. And for me, it's also represented moving from the perspective of survivors, which has been almost all my work, to the perspective of at least one who did not survive and knew. Uh, he personally went on and, and believed rightly that almost nobody would. So it's a shift in that way as well for me, this piece. He's a guy, I mean, I could go on as I do. <laughs> he was so provocative. And in a way, you know, was he crazy? Was he mad? Was he, you know, this is always with these kind of characters, trickster figures. Are they nuts? Are they wise? Are they, you know, what are they? We don't know. And I don't think we ever will know. But part of his thing, I think, was to be kind of a figure that other people made up stories about as i said there was a play about him even in the ghetto itself and over the years i'm not the first one i'm one of a line of people who have been charmed and engaged by this guy and uh and i think he, he allows us to project all kinds of things what we need which was what he was doing to let us let us use our imagination and especially when you're in a situation of walls closing in uh, having room to use one's imagination including imagining being elsewhere, it can be very helpful, <laughs> can be in a way essential. I see that as what he was about. Um, and that's what artists in general, at least part of what they're about. Um, I don't see it as, you know, there's a lot these days on called cultural resistance or spiritual resistance. I don't think of it in those sort of academic terms. I just think of it, you know, this is a guy who, 
this is the play side. There's death, and on the other side of that slash, there's play. Play, even with walls closing in, allows a certain improvising, allows a certain movement. It'll give some room, again, for imagination and for something. But that those walls ultimately do close in, at least in this context, for most they did. I'm not someone, say, Viktor Frankl's work has gotten very popular and has been over the years. I think we want to believe that, as Frankl suggested, that even in the worst circumstances, we as humans have the capacity to stand back and assess and make sense and that there's some inner part of us where we're not totally swallowed up by the disaster. I don't believe that. I mean, as my as I've heard people who survived and read those who didn't, I think there are times when there is no stepping back. One play in imagination and stepping out of the situation are indeed impossible. Um, and, uh, you know, that's in a way grim, but I just think it's it's real. So it makes it all the more precious when there is room still to... Uh, to play, to step back. And, and to me, he was the master of how to just do that for himself, but help others hold on to that side of who they are, who we are. What was your uh, source material that you drew from? It's interesting. When I was first involved, this goes all the way back in the 1970s, I read a lot of memoirs. He was in Warsaw Ghetto, as I said, and and He's mentioned by almost everybody, you know, not in length, but there'll be a passing reference. Oh, no, then Rubenstein said, you know, some saying, some, he did this crazy thing. And so he was very, very well known. Um, so I would read these little moments and it intrigued me all the way back. But I, and I tried at various points to see if I could learn more like about him. I wasn't thinking play. I was just interested. Um, and I, I really didn't find much. I also wasn't writing plays in those days, you know. So, you know, it was years and years. And then um, a colleague of mine um, who's doing really excellent work on Warsaw Ghetto specifically gave a talk at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, which focused on this guy, Rubenstein. And I happened to read it. This was like three or four years ago. I said, suddenly there was all this information put together that I didn't know uh, or hadn't found myself about him. So that was really the beginning of a sense of, gosh, there's, there's more uh, substance here. And of course, as a playwright, you know, you can take liberties. And, um, and again, it was part of his whole MO, I think, to allow us to, to imagine who he was. So I do. So it's, I always say, this is my Rubenstein, right? This is, I think that's quite in keeping with what he would have been okay with, but who knows? <laughs> oh, but, but, um, yeah, so having a certain, I mean, what to me is important is not to include in a play of any kind, but like this, what could not have happened historically. I mean, so it, it is important to be true to what we know historically. Um, so you don't have him, you know, in a town which he couldn't possibly have been in a certain year. But as long as you do your homework in that regard. And, and so this man I mentioned who gave the talk, you know, he's read the script. Others who are true experts, historians in this area have read it. And they have found some things. They said, well, he wouldn't have known that then. He couldn't. And so great. You know, so I uh, go with that. But then there's still room to play. <laughs> to play with a play. I mean, there's room to imagine and there's room to... Uh, create a character and circumstances that might have happened or could have happened. We don't necessarily know that they happened, but, you know, um, so I guess in thinking about it, um, it's also different than Remnants in, in the sense that Remnants was not verbatim. It was close, but not. it was a reconstruction of what people said and uh, in those special moments. Uh, but this kind of work, there's more room, you know, to uh, use one's own imagination. That brings me to ask you about what I believe is one of your even more recent projects, Gravediggers. Would you describe that and how you put that together? Yeah, that's very young. 
<laughs> very young and 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 who knows um but that is a uh it actually came out of a, a workshop uh, a writing playwriting workshop um i wasn't planning to write a play set in ukraine which gravediggers is in the present moment but doing exercises for the class which were dialogue exercises i just found myself going back and imagining uh, essentially two characters um this is what was not then but we now say it was early in the war in ukraine um uh, in the first month or so um and yeah they were grave diggers that wasn't their in my play you know that their actual professions you know were other things one was actually a teacher of folklore and the reason that's relevant is because he's able as a character to sort of make references to things every now and then that someone who wasn't a teacher of folklore wouldn't know. <laughs> so it just was convenient, right, for me. But beyond that, you know, it's it's a challenge because, as you know, this is unlike survivors. I don't feel I I know. You know, I, I want it to be authentic enough. I don't want to create caricatures for characters. And um, and so, you know, some of my colleagues who know Ukraine better and know Ukrainians better and so on have read some of it. And um, I frankly don't know where it'll go. You know, this is truly when you're writing kind of in, in a historical moment about the historical moment, you know, it's... it's risky <laughs> it's risky in the sense that whatever you think you're describing things could change so profoundly that it could be totally beside the point um really quick i don't think that's quite happened with this piece but you know at this point it's a sort of on a a wait and see mode for now i previously had interviewed a historian of the holocaust who had described her idea of justice as including listening to the stories of victims and giving them a voice. I wonder with all of the uh, work that you do, what you think of that and, and what your idea of right. justice mm -hmm. is and how, how yeah. it's evolved. Yeah. See if this is a maybe slightly sideways way of, of, of responding. It's easier for me to talk about injustice than just, I'm not sure why that is, but it just feels more natural. I've been asked and said, you know, what what what's what's your field? You know, and one could say, well, I'm, I guess Holocaust studies, oral history more generally. But I now, of course, there's a lot of centers and work that this Holocaust and genocide studies. It, perhaps one of my more glib moments, I will say, my field is disposable people studies. <laughs> and people become disposable, of course, because they are targeted in genocide as being unworthy of life and therefore unworthy of being on the planet. And if we <laughs> want to talk about radical injustice, uh, when you're that, you know, you can't get more radical than that, it seems to me. But of course, people become disposable for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with necessarily hate or racism you know the, again it's a cliche but i mean all the structural reasons um, the inequities that we live with in our world that are sort of the, the structure of everything you know that the people in mass quality are left out and not necessarily as in genocide because we want it somebody wants to get rid of it because they're in the way you know there's some a company i mean i could use any example but you know the u.s context a corporation wants to do this or do that or have this project and make of this or make of that and turns out a lot of people are hurt along the way um i teach about pharma so <laughs> believe it or not um no and the pharma it's not genocide <laughs> i rely on prescription drugs myself but you know as in any anything corruption happens and part of corruption is is that other people don't matter and so 
the project goes forward, there's so-called collateral damage, right? <laughs> I mean, some number of people fall away. Uh, oh, geez, that's too bad. And, you know, it's corruption when, why do they know, when do they know it? Um, but there are so many ways that people become disposable are treated as disposable, as, quote, collateral damage because of some other project, because of some other something. So that, to me, is all the, diff all the manifestations of injustice. What justice would be when it would be when that's not happening? And it's, to be honest, for me, it's almost hard to imagine a world in which if we transcend that, like we're in utopia land, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I almost think it would take a, a radical, we, we'd have to have some kind of positive mutation <laughs> as a species, just as we will, in my view, to deal with the environmental catastrophes we're in, you know, it would require thinking in terms of, as everyone says, globally, and in terms of collective good, that we are so far, and I'm not just talking about in the U.S., but in the world, we are so far away from thinking in ways like that, from identifying with each other and the tasks, not just tasks, but the obligations and, and threats that we face together. Really experiencing that, I mean, it is utopian even to, to, to say it. Um, but I, I, I can't imagine that we're going to address these issues in a meaningful way. The way that matters without some such evolution and uh, you know i'm like my friend rubenstein i'd like to imagine it um like john lennon imagine all the people right but um so i can imagine it but can i really imagine it like do i think it could happen i'm not that sanguine <laughs> i'm just not you know it's uh i'm not the most uh, hopeful person and certainly in these ways um joke um someone said recently uh, said, hank so you see the glass is half full or half empty i said wait it's wet <laughs> okay it's my job. um so yeah um so i, I play with the uh, notion but i think to be involved in these topics and i see it in my students see it my colleagues if you're a totally grim person and you're a total pessimist then you're not going to go there because you have you just like dissolve <laughs> there'd be no place to hide emotionally so i think inevitably i won't even call it hope but a certain kind of playfulness a certain kind of uh, resilience a certain kind of well, the in it togetherness you know is the way is where where hope lives for me is again is a notion going back to the beginning of the conversation of whatever we can do together collaboratively is where hope is it's not in our individual stories it's not in our whatever um moments of whatever they are it's 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 a between thing it's what happens between us uh collectively that the uh, so what I'm, you know, whatever I hope or don't hope is just me. <laughs> it's what we can hope for and work, you know, together. It sounds like a bad commencement address, but you know, <laughs> that's as good as I get for the moment. What would you say with all the work that you've been doing and and you're still continuing to do? What would you see as the legacy that you want to be creating? Hmm. I guess. Well, I'm going to go back and quote my beloved Augie again. Um, who in our book, there's a passage about legacy, which I won't read, but I will try to quickly paraphrase. Legacy is one of those words that is often used with and about survivors. Usually when people refer to the survivor's legacy, they're talking about their, quote, testimony, they're talking about memory and generation generation and never again and all of those things which have whatever meaning they have um as you hear you know i'm not totally on board with that rhetoric um what Agi said 
was that what she realized over the course of her life is that her legacy is not up to her. She can do whatever she can do and make whatever she can make. But just as her parents, her own parents, could not possibly have foreseen what her life would be, you know, could not have foreseen Auschwitz, um, and what she would meet. She recognizes that that's how it is in history, that's how it is in generations. So, and I, of course, as a teacher, uh, <clears throat> one thinks about this all the time, like, what am, am I, am I providing something that is going to be of any use in the future for my students or my readers or anybody that I have contact with? And the reality is, I do what I do, and then it will be up to them. And that's what Aki said. This is a, I found in my life, I chose things, things that my mother's values, which she said, I hardly remember my mother's face, but I remember certain values that became important to me. From her father, it was the way he sang in synagogue that became a part of her there's this sort of harmonizing of voices that she talks about. And um, and so at the end, she doesn't try to suggest what her legacy, per se, is. Because she, say, suggests that she can't know that. It's not up to her. Uh, it will be what others find and what she has done, what she has said, what she, who she's been that turns out to be relevant, to quote her directly, to their circumstances, which I know will be different from mine. You will take what you need, what you choose, just as I did. That's how it's written. And so I'd say the same. You know, and over the, you know, I don't have to be gone to know that. I mean, I, having heard over the years from students and others, you know, I see that happening, which is very gratifying. That people have found a piece of this, a piece of that, Talking to you, <laughs> you know, you've done me the great honor of, of listening to my stuff and then asking me these things. That's this is what I'm talking. You know, hopefully, you know, it's because you've found and seen some things that have, seem to be of interest or relevance. That's the legacy. Different people will find different pieces and different things that may speak to their own interests, circumstances. So it's not one thing, um, and it's both. Liberating and, um, I suppose, slightly disorganizing to uh, see life that way. You know, I somehow, I think we, again, it's like having the story. We like the sort of lump sum of oh, my legacy is here in the uh, vault. <laughs> Here's the key and just take it out when you need it. <laughs> you know? It ain't that way, right? It's a bunch of stuff all over the place that different people will take different pieces of. And um, that's as well as it does, as we do, I think, and that's doing pretty good. It also takes the pressure off, uh, feeling like we well, have to complete everything because then it's going to be in the vault and is available to access by future generations or whatever. You know, I mean, that's a lot of pressure on oneself, let alone generations. And the odds of that happening, not much. <laughs> you know, I just don't think it works that way. There will be a link in the show notes to Dr. Greenspan's website to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. The podcast Patreon page also has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash warfare of art and law. You can also share your comments by emailing stephanie at warfare of art and law dot com or by leaving a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. 
Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.